This is the Let's Grab Coffee podcast, and I'm your host, George Khalife. On today's episode, I interview Stephanie Lapierre, who's the founder and CEO of Tealbook. Tealbook uses AI technology to improve speed, trust, and quality of supplier-related decisions. With its social media-like interface, Tealbook delivers real-time, relevant supplier insight to all users across the organization from one place. Steph has been recognized as one of the top 100 most influential women in supply chain, and her company, Tealbook, has been named a top 50 company to watch by Spend Matters and won the Cool Vendor Award by Gartner. What I always love to do is kind of understand what got you in entrepreneurship. What, like, was it always something you wanted to do? Is this, was this like your dream from when you were a kid? Uh, I think so. Um, I, I, I don't know much different. My family was all entrepreneurs. And so my grandfather had started Pepsi in um, in Quebec in the sort of the the middle of Quebec, um, and he was a bottler and a distributor back wow. uh, probably in the fifties before my dad was born. My dad was born forty five, I think, and then he passed away sadly. Uh, and my grandmother, who was like in her early thirties at the time, with three kids, and people were coming to her asking if they could buy the business and she decided to run it herself. And so she hired uh, someone that could oversee sort of the more the manufacturing supply chain and someone else that could oversee finance. And so she ran Pepsi for a long time. She sold to PepsiCo in 91. And so that was the first wow. inspiration of seeing my grandmother who had never worked really in her life, taking over a business. Um, yeah. Quite a figure, Pepsi being, um, I think in Quebec, it's like the only place in the world where Pepsi has higher market share than Coke. <laughs> like that. And uh, I think it has to do a lot with the community. And I've definitely seen my grandmother opening hockey games and being at, you know, community uh, festivals and, uh, and being very present in the community and being uh, you know, on all kinds of boards for the, the bottling associations and things like that. So she was pretty inspirational. Um, and then if I look around, I grew up in Quebec in a highly entrepreneurship world. All my girlfriends, that they have their own law firm now or their real estate agent, or they have, they've taken over the family business. Um, and my sister's been an entrepreneur for many years. My brother, who's much younger than me, is now on his own. And so I've come from a family of, you know, people who've always sort of beat to their own drum. So probably part of my DNA, I guess. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I mean, it, it sounds like uh, obviously the environment is super important, right? Like you got that inspiration from from your grandmother at the time. And, and now seeing everybody around you, from your friends to your siblings, they're all doing their thing. How important was that for you just to kind of get started, but also have that that sort of support system as you were growing Tealbook, but even things previous to that? Uh, I think my support system with Tealbook is more my direct family now, like my husband. Mm. I could have not done that without him being so supportive. He's an entrepreneur as well. So it's nice. That helps. To have two entrepreneurs, (laughs) two kids in a household. Um, But definitely it was one of those things that, um, you know, you get, I get ideas all the time about businesses. I always want to fix things. And so that comes with a lot of concepts and ideas. And at some point I remember my husband saying, just pick one, (laughs) pick an idea. And back in the days, so that was, 13 years ago or so, I decided to pick an idea that was to help um, companies find innovation, um, especially in highly competitive environments. And so I had been in marketing as well, and I always found it 
quite challenging to find uh, partners that could really differentiate my business. And so mm-hmm. spent a lot of time meeting different vendors and having coffee, but walking away most of the time with nothing that was like amazing. And so I decided to start this company that was going to help seek innovation and innovation coming often from partners, um, develop a process that allowed, you know, commercial teams mostly uh, find innovative partners. And that process uh, worked out really well. Customers really liked it. It was really efficient. And beknownst to me, it was actually strategic sourcing and part of procurement. Um, and so that process being liked and, and resulting in some really significant outcome from my clients, then companies started asking if we could help improve efficiencies uh, in the way that they were doing strategic sourcing and procurement in their organization, um, trying to help them bridge the gap between what procurement goals are and how the business is trying to uh, move their business forward. And there's a lot of friction and a lot of delays and different goals. And so my consulting business grew around really improving the efficiency of the procurement function. Um, and then a lot of my clients worked in large, large companies, went on and became executives of these really fast growing hyper growth organizations that were raising a lot of capital anywhere from 30 $200 million, most of them launching their first commercial asset. And so you have to build a sustainable, scalable, global uh, supply chain and starting from the beginning. And so it's a bit of a clean slate. Uh, it's daunting, but it's an opportunity to build, you know, procurement in a way that procurement should be. And so I always, you know, seen enormous operational and financial efficiencies when procurement is done well. When it's not done well, it creates a lot of, of challenges. When it, when it's done well, um, and it allows employees to make better, faster decisions. It allows finance to have visibility. Um, it allows to not introduce unnecessary risk. It allows you to partner with suppliers in a way that you can really uh, bring innovation and gives you, you know, significant competitive advantage. And so, um, you know, that was a, a vision that I had that we could help companies build that from scratch and realize very quickly that even though we had this, you know, fantastic sort of vision, it was impossible to do because um, as you introduced processes and systems in the organization as a way to operationalize procurement, you end up with uh, a lot of data in many different places. And so mm-hmm. you end up with silos, with not being able to access good information. Suddenly you're back into friction and delays and lack of visibility and high cost. And so um, I wanted to fix that. And that's what got me really passionate about is I couldn't find a solution that existed in the market and I could see the solution really, really clearly. Now, how could we, how do we get there with a different, you know, is the secret. <laughs> yeah. And, and I spent nine years fighting the idea because I could see it clearly, but the technology at the time, most software were on premise, which would yeah. make it very difficult to extract data from. Uh, we didn't talk about big data. We didn't talk about machine learning back then. And so it took me nine years um, to decide to take the leap going from, you know, this running and growing this amazing consulting business, which I don't operate anymore, but still own uh, with an amazing team there that have continued to growing that business. Um, but looking at, hey, I want to solve this problem. And so, um, you know, launching a tech company and building an AI big data 
uh, tech startup, you know, comes with a lot of challenges. And luckily for me, I didn't know any of them before I started. So sometimes, you know, in a sense, it's a bliss. <laughs> yeah, um, it's true. I mean, that, that can probably be a strength at times, right? I often feel like that, that um, like the fact that you can be fluid, let's say, and maybe not sandboxed as other entrepreneurs would be who are maybe tackling a similar problem or want to tackle a similar problem you're kind of going in there with really fresh eyes and you're like let's let's make it happen from this point of view because you come from that consulting background one of the things though that's interesting is like from your consulting side i guess one of the challenges would be scalability right because the the asset in that case is almost the people that uh, you know work for these large corporates who help them with their innovation you saw that procurement was was kind of a traditional, archaic process, and you wanted to fix different components of it. What did you want to tackle kind of specifically first that you thought really could gain some traction? So on the consulting side, you're right. I mean, you're only as scalable as the people. And so right. that business was never going to, like, I mean, it's it's growing amazingly. And so, um, and that's because I have, again, a, a great, great team. But with Tealbook, it's a different beast. And we had to build Tealbook in a way that could scale. What, we were, what we're solving for is a fundamental problem is that an employee, no matter the company, if it's an employee that needs a supplier to do their job, there's an enormous amount of friction with having access to the information that they need in order to get that job done. Um, and procurement touches much, much more than uh, sourcing, but just in the, in the example of sourcing, if I'm an employee in a company today and I need to find a supplier, uh, for whatever it could be product or services just to get my job done we're talking about over 200 hours on average and up to 16 weeks to be able to go through the process of I have business requirements I need to find a supplier I need to go through a bidding process I need to onboard that supplier to my system just to be able to start doing the work and so in a day in a world where agility and competitiveness and speed is so critical that's not acceptable anymore. And, and the nice thing now is that we do have the technology um, to, you know, to enable information to be available to people through system or directly in their hands so that they can drive decisions. But we had to change and we had to educate and we also had to see a market shift within procurement that they were willing to embrace a change. And they're really, in a way, forced to do that change because traditionally procurement has been quite process driven, a lot mm-hmm. of repetitive tasks, quite tactical in some element of procurement that, you know, is being disrupted through automation and through technology. And so how does a procurement leader think ahead? How do we not disrupt ourselves? How do we build a more strategic function that's enabling and scalable and impacts a lot more spend and enable people to do their job? while making good decisions, while getting the best value out of suppliers and without putting my company in the front page of a newspaper because of some risk that's being introduced. So all these components are really critical and we had to wait for the technology to catch up. But luckily for us, you know, we were able to foresee that probably a little bit ahead of the market. And that's allowed us to now be in a position to, to scale and, and grow with this, you know, this quite disrupted market. When you look at like when I when I think of supply chain and, and sort of the let's say the, uh, the the best examples of maybe some large larger corporations that did it very very well, McDonald's is always kind of the that repeat you know shiny example. When I'm just kind of curious from your perspective, being in the industry and and kind of doing this from your side, which companies do you look at and you're like 
they really understand supply chain innovation and they're really like at the forefront of what we're all trying to improve here. I mean, we, we work with some of the largest companies in the world. Um, and, you know, I think supply chain and procurement are very close, but, but they're a bit different. When I think about um, uh, just the function of procurement itself and in supply chain, it also requires data. And so obviously there's some companies who became very sophisticated, who work on very small margins, always had to be really smart about um, their bottom line. So procurement is much more sophisticated in low margin sectors um, and supply chain and, and, and higher margins, but highly innovative, like the pharma biotech space, for example, is really um, important in, in, to the organization. Uh, but if I look at our customers um, and I, I speak at a lot of, conferences actually when I was in Chicago recently and I have procurement executive from some of the largest companies in the world sitting in that room we're talking hundreds of procurement executives chief procurement officers VP of global procurement etc head of transformation and I ask always sort of three questions one raise your hand if you believe if you have some confidence in the quality of your supplier data today if you have you have confidence in the information about the suppliers um, that are doing business with the organization and everyone smiles and look around and nobody raises their hand, right? And then the second question is, raise your hand if you believe that good quality supplier data is absolutely critical to your digital transformation. And then you get 100% of people raising their hands. And I often ask, like, who here is invested in a cloud-based procure-to-pay solution? And I value at Uriba, Kupa, Jagger, whatever, and you get about three quarters of people that raise their hands. And so that lands itself in sort of the problem. Like mm-hmm. if we believe at 100% that good quality data is absolutely critical to the digital procurement transformation, but we don't have confidence in the quality of our data, we have a huge data gap. And everyone talks about this data gap, but nobody's really came up with a solution yet. And what we've heard in the past couple of years and what we've seen in the market kind of painfully because you're building a solution and then you're seeing this movement of procurement teams going to uh, adopt and pour millions of dollars into these procure source to pay system. Um, but they're still having data problem. And that's because a lot of the software companies have told a really good digitization story, right? Lead your digital mm-hmm. transformation with a cloud-based procure to pay, get transparency, automate your, your, um, uh, in, you know, payments, um, there's a lot of different qualities and efficiencies that's gained through those software and that technology, but software is, is software. And a lot of those companies, when they buy the software, they then go obviously engage a SI system integrator that will be responsible for the implementation and the change management of those software. And they're also responsible for the data. And those companies don't have technology to automate the data stream into the software. So it's being done in very antiquated ways. And it's being done with a really high variable on the data. Who's cleansing the data? How's the data being enriched? How it's being populated into the software? And then how is it being maintained? Uh, And we're seeing a lot of friction, delays, and even failures right now in P2P or S2P implementation, mostly due to the poor quality of the data. 
And that's one system. Now you have your ERP system, which is your financial system, and you'll be bound to buy all kinds of new technologies that are going to be enabling this digital transformation. So niche product that can help you do sourcing or contract or logistics or supplier relationship management or, 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 right. The the list continues. So you're going to build this ecosystem of technologies and each of those technology will have a profile of the same supplier that is going to be required to be created either by the supplier, either by the company itself, or they're going to invite suppliers to come to another platform to complete their profile. So you're going to end up with having to connect, you know, the dots information across all these systems, which is actually quite impossible, especially when we're talking about companies like McDonald's or large organization who have hundreds of thousands of suppliers. They just think about the amount of information and record that needs to be collected, maintained, validated, reported, and the sheer amount of information created around, you know, across the organization and outside on these suppliers. Um, and so that's really what, you know, my, my passion is to resolve, but we can actually use technology to create a source of truth, to create a record that of each company in the world that continuously becomes better over time, that, that completeness of the information being automated in a way that our customers can leverage that record in a dynamic way can have better information that's updated uh, through automation, that's validated, and that's distributed across systems. And uh, it is also learning from those systems in a way that uh, the data continuously improves. What it does is that it allows your investment, those millions of dollars poured in technology to be more effective because now the data is automated. Whoever uses the software is actually being able to leverage better quality data And it makes you a lot more flexible in the future to be able to adopt technologies that can just plug in the same data source as opposed to having delays or trying to recreate information and connect it. Um, And the analogy we often give is sort of the Iron Man analogy of the arc reactor, right? You've got the the man, you've got all the technology. It's an amazing suit, but without this arc reactor, technology is just, you know, it's just metal or whatever. Um, So how do you fuel that technology in a way that you can really maximize it? Um, you know, we believe that that Tealbook is is really landing that position as a trusted source of supplier data that powers this $20 billion software market. And that's just specific to procurement, not taking into consideration finance, legal, quality, security, all the other systems that have supplier data residing into it. What sort of uh, like actual data fragments am I seeing? Like, let's say I'm on the procurement team of company XYZ and we're leveraging Tealbook. What are those specific data fragments that are really empowering my team to become more efficient in, in our processes? Yeah, so there's um, five sort of categories of data that we're uh, self-enriching and, com- and continuously to add completeness to the data through various mm-hmm. ways. Uh, one, one that we do really well today is understanding at 100% what your suppliers actually do. So, um, you know, products and services at a pretty granular level, understanding how they're being categorized uh, by industry standard, also by companies like yours, so that you can start uh, automate the classification or the categorization and tie back to spend. A lot of our clients struggle with that. It's done manually or they have a lot of suppliers that are not classified. Then it's hard to kind of go back to spend data. 
And then what we've done uh, incredibly well is looking at 300 different dimensions of what makes a company similar or not to one another. So we can start delivering cluster of companies who do exactly the same things within your existing vendor master. So you know where there's opportunities to consolidate because there are too many suppliers that you're maintaining data and record and paying that do exactly the same things with no economies of scale. And then other areas where, you know, in the world, there's a lot of suppliers that are similar, but you're not tapping into that competitiveness. So you're missing opportunities to drive um, more savings. The second categories of data is contact information, title, physical location, things that seem pretty mundane, but it's really hard to find contact, good contact information. Yeah. And if you ask most supply chain and procurement team, they would be able to contact a percentage of their suppliers, but not at 100%. So if you have a change of policy, um, you know, you've got, um, uh, you know, any kind of issues that you'd want to communicate to your suppliers or change, you can't actually effectively do it today. So having contact information, hugely important. The third one is anything tied into risk. So how relevant is the data? How transparent? Uh, how trusted is the information? And then go into a financial, political, social risk. Uh, Fourth four categories is all onboarding data. So banking information, things that are quite sensitive that you, you know you would not want anyone to just have access to, but granted by permission base. So uh, tax information, uh, insurance certificate, things like that. And then the final categories is anything that needs to be uh, obtained, updated, validated, reported on an annual basis. So that could be GDPR certificate, ISO certificates, uh, supplier diversity certificates, any sustainability certificate. Today, they live in different systems. So having one place where all those certificates live, that it can be validated and then distributed across all the systems that need it, hugely valuable and a huge time saver, especially if, if you're... Uh, you've got some compliance requirements around reporting that data. And so that's where we're focusing and continuously investing in our machine learning to make that data more complete and then being able to, to automate that in a dynamic way so it's not done manually, it's done through uh, technology. It's a huge change for our industry. Yeah, and I think uh, kind of a, a change within within Tealbook's position. I know we talked a bit about this before the podcast started, but that kind of uh, pivot from you know being predominantly a software company into being a data company. And uh, for those who who might have not seen it this yet, but um, so Tealbook just raised six point five three million Canadian, I think, which is like five million US. Uh, so this is seed plus of uh, I think what what you guys called it, kind of a seed plus funding round, so maybe an early Series A. Uh, or a bridge round, as usually they, they'd call it. Um, a lot of U.S. investors in there. How was that process like, Steph? And, and kind of curious from, from your perspective as the CEO, what what you're looking to do with these uh, with this new round of financing, and, and how you're you're maybe envisioning the next kind of stage of, of growth plan for for the company. Yeah, and we actually took just uh, additional funding from Silicon Valley Bank, so the the nice. round ended up being a bit larger. Um, you know, for us. The vision's always been the same. How can you make supply information good so that that people can do their job? How can you mm-hmm. enable digital transformation with better information? If I go back into the publications that we, or the, the some of the webinar that we hosted, the message was always the same. But when you're building a new company in a new category, if you think of Tillbook, you know, data's always been a service. You've bought lists, you've hired people to fix your data. And this is the first time that data is now being sold as a product, right? It's sort of a fundamental right. add-on to your technology stack. But we didn't 
you know, we're trying to figure out how do we, how do we access, um, how do we disseminate data in, in the hands of people? And when we're a smaller company going through an integration strategy seemed pretty daunting um, because we didn't have a name yet for ourselves, and our data was still fairly new. And so we built an interface that was really beautiful, very easy to use so that we would have um, opportunities to sell our technology and put it in the hands of employees. And so we were selling very use case driven in a way that um, our clients could see the applications. For example, if you need to find more suppliers, we have this growing network using similar supplier search with algorithms that allow you to expand your, your footprint and very quickly find companies that meet your requirements in your geography, for example, or are more competitive, or maybe women-owned if you're looking to have certain target for supplier diversity. And so that was a use case. Um, another use case would have been understanding how many suppliers do the same thing. So now you have this platform that you could naturally consolidate the suppliers to drive more value to the business and drive people to a place where they could actually access the information because today, if you need to know who does training for the organization or which recruiting firm do we use, like it's really hard to find that data. So now we're putting something in the hands of people. What we found is that even though the reaction from, from customers were like, wow, this is beautiful. We can definitely see this. Very cool, right? Mm-hmm. We, we were not addressing the sense of urgency in the way that we were selling because our clients were pouring millions of dollars into these massive cloud-based platforms. And truthfully, their investment were on the line, right? There was an enormous amount of cost. We heard the city of New York was $54 million over budget alone implementing a P2P solution with one of the largest consulting firms. And, and I think I've, we saw that Gardner was saying that 75% of IT project will fail because of poor data quality. So you've got all the stats now that has come out in the last year and a half because a lot of our customers have ran to the software solutions, the software partner that they've known who've told this amazing story. And even some of them have told a really good data story actually not really resolving their data. Problem. We saw last year, a big part of that was Matt Palladary, who's joined us in July, who came from our industry. He was part of a leadership team of a company called Acquired, who was acquired by Coupa about a year and a half ago. And is Matt was um, at one of the consulting firm when the news came out of the city of New York. And he says, hey, you've got about $90 million of Coupa implementation that's already committed. How are you doing this? Like, what technology are you using to take a vendor master clean it, enrich it, and automate like automate how you're, you're populating and maintaining data into, into a system like Coupa. And these guys said, well, if we had the answer, we wouldn't be sitting here. And so that's what prompted Matt to reach out. It's like, if, if you're doing what I think you're doing, not what I'm reading on your website, which was very use case driven and software based, mm-hmm. you know, there's a massive opportunity right now. And so he, he and I started talking about a year ago, um, and then in July, he joined, so he, he cut his contract short with Coupa. We had no time to waste. We really needed to, to, to reposition Tailbook. We didn't reposition or change our technology. We just re, re-articulated the urgency that our customers are facing with their investment and talking about having Tailbook being that data foundation that can power these investment in technologies. And so we started testing in July with the market, going to analysts, thought leaders, customers, and the, the, you could kind of feel the G-force of the market 
longing for a solution. And that was incredibly exciting. Um, that got us to relook at the skill set, rebuilt our sales and marketing team uh, with the right skill set, which had to be a bit more challenger sales because our customers have done certain things a certain way. They've heard the solutions being solved a different way and it's not working. And so, um, and that got obviously investors quite excited. And so having, you know, we've attracted as a lead investor, Refinery Ventures out of Cincinnati. We also opened an office in Cincinnati. That's where Matt is building our sales and marketing team. Awesome. Um, Ohio's a great place. You know, it's, yeah. a, it's a good, it's a good place for great talent um, without being in a really competitive place. Like Silicon yeah. Um, yeah. So with Refinery Ventures coming in, the partner there is the founder of Share This. So if you share anything on a website, um, that's it, the company founded. He's been an investor for, since 1998 and a great guy. Like, so you've got all the ingredients. Nice. And we, we were in a sweet spot of being a data-driven company, pre-hyper growth that could feel the G-force of this $20 billion market that was growing really fast. So he got excited. Uh, Grand Ventures came in right after, uh, wanted to put money in. We were already oversubscribed and then Workday Ventures, uh, who we had met at Collision in Toronto. Um, we had nice. also kept up to date on what was happening and their mm -hmm. VP of product there was 17 years at Ariba. They had just bought Scout RFP for half a billion dollars and they recognized, you know, this white space that we were addressing using machine learning, natural language processing, big data to solve a really significant problem that Workday customers would eventually face or would face because they don't have a dynamic data stream. And also with Scout, if you're going to launch an RFP, you need a network of information that's quite efficient to be able to launch an RFP with the right suppliers, making sure that you got the right contact information, that you're including the suppliers that are the best fit for the opportunity. And so it was a natural kind of use case for Scout, but also a good opportunity for us to automate data into Workday. So they got pretty excited and then they ended up uh, participating kind of at the last minute. So we we opened the round more to let them in as a very strategic um, investor. And they recognized that in order for Tailbook to be successful, we had to be technology agnostic. And that was really important in those discussions because we could not, we could not be exclusive. And so although we are actively pursuing a partnership with Workday, we're also uh, you know, in, in, uh, in commercial terms now with uh, other P2P platform and we're building a two-way integration for all the digital solution that would plug in to Tailbook so that procurement teams don't have to invite their suppliers to four or five, 10, 15, you know, different portals and ask those suppliers to maintain those portals, which is, they just don't do it. It's just mm -hmm. too many portals to maintain and not enough value for suppliers to engage. I'm sure when you went, obviously when the round was oversubscribed, like it was a big relief you know, walk me kind of through that, that experience, like closing, uh, closing the round and maybe some of the things that you learned um, going through this, this, I would say late stage seed round uh, and maybe some kind of tips and advice for, for aspiring founders who, who are looking to maybe do the same thing down the road. I mean, without growth, <laughs> it's really hard to raise capital, <laughs> right? When you have that an idea, you're selling the vision and someone, you know, an investor has to take a chance on you on your mm -hmm. vision, that you have what it takes to build the vision, uh, you understand the market. It, it's a very different type of raise when you're going, we, we you know, it, debatably, the raise we just had would be a healthy Canadian Series A. Uh, we call it a Series A because we feel that 
although we felt the G-force of the market, we've got much larger, faster deal. We've been able to sell much larger deals within 60 days of getting, you know, presenting at a conference with very large companies. We're opening sectors like oil and gas, manufacturing, insurance, banking, um, higher ed. Um, and so we were quite predominantly in pharma biotech initially, but suddenly we're able to deliver value retail, deliver quite fast value because our data is getting better. And um, that was really exciting, but we feel that we have some market validation still to be had. We want to build a very predictable sales and marketing engine. So um, a lot of focus on operationalizing sales and marketing right now. And um, those partnership with P2P uh, companies, especially the ones that don't have a supplier network, can really benefit. They can make themselves, uh, give themselves a competitive advantage by adding Tealbook. Um, but also um, the ones that are looking to provide more value by removing this high variable and the implementation of their software can see a lot of val benefit partnering with us. And so like essentially in the future, if you buy a STP or P2P solution, you should buy Tailbook with it. You should not yeah. uh, you know, go to third party providers to trying to get your data to be manually populated in your system. It should just be a, nat a natural add-on. And so those partnerships were really critical. So we want to use that to, you know, for scale. And, uh, and on the data side, we're putting a lot of capital right now. We have our own data scientist team. Our CTO works at Google, did two masters in computer sciences with a big focus on machine learning based data, worked at IBM, worked at Ariba, so understood our space. And so Jeff is shifting a lot of his effort right now on expediting the growth of those data categories I was talking about. So that, um, you know, the more data we can see, the less we rely on, our, on customers to be able to gain value. And right now we're already delivering significant value just by getting a vendor master, turning the light on and giving it back to our clients in a way that they can see now 100% of their suppliers uh, inside that they could have never seen before. So continuing to deliver that magic and growing the value in our data is really key. So that's where the capital is. Um, but without that, that G-force from the market, um, you know, I'd say try to ride it as long as you can before raising capital because debatably mm -hmm. it was almost too easy as we closed this round. And it's been such a hard journey to this point that you're like, it can't be that easy. That's just because now we have growth, right? And so, yeah. how, um, how long was that? Like, because primarily, were you bootstrapped before this? Like, I think this was the first... Primarily the first equity round, no? We've raised, so far we've raised 11 million in venture. Um, okay, gotcha. So we had a seed, we had an angel investor very, very early on who believed in me completely. Um, and that allowed us to create the, the, the MVP that allowed us to test the market and see what we were building. And then we did a seed round in 2017. So three years ago, that's when we raised the first uh, institutional uh, capital that allowed me to really bring the executive team on. And then we've rebuilt Tailbook with machine learning native and seeded our own data. It took us about eight months to launch, relaunch Tailbook with our own data set. We had a million suppliers at the time. Um, and since then we've been, you know, growing, investing more into um, data and our data scientist team while we continue to build software. And the software itself, I'd say, um, we're continuing to invest in it because for mid-market who do not have technology, it's a really strong value proposition to start any digital transformation with data first. And then mm -hmm. you can use our lightweight 
technology that's really easy to use to get quick wins. But if you want a more robust RFP tool, you want a more robust third-party risk management solution or P2P, you should go and buy that and then connect it to Tailbook. So we're continuing to have these lightweight functionalities. And for the larger companies that are really buying for data, we see that they end up using our interface for the analytics, or maybe there's some use cases that they feel that our interface is maybe more useful, like you know, either doing discovery or uh, enabling non-procurement users to access information in a really easy from their phone. So those are mm-hmm. kind of use cases. So I, I think I drifted from my answer there, but, um, but, but yeah. <laughs> gotcha. No, I, I like that sort of detail just in terms of understanding w- where your head's at in terms of how you want to use that capital and why it's so important. But also I think that the, the advice underneath that is like, you took you, you were more patient in the beginning to grow the business and, and matured properly before doing the raise. And because of that, the raise was easier than you had expected. But, you know, it, it's kind of like it's not an overnight success. It, it was like a five year overnight success. Um, and, and so to that point, you know, obviously, last question for you. And I want to be mindful of your time, but because I really appreciate this conversation is, you know, for and I mentioned this to you briefly that within my community, a lot of female entrepreneurs, a lot of them are aspiring founders. And so I feel like it's important to have certain role models and just to kind of understand from your point, what were some of the, the maybe early advice that you got that you found were super helpful that, you know, you'd want to share with someone listening to this right now. And I, I want to answer that, but before I, I just want to, yeah, to please. talk upon something because what I think was really critical in this pivot for us. Um, and luckily we didn't have to change our technology. The technology was all there is the way that we articulate to the market Mm-hmm. but was to recognize that, that something needed to be done to recognize very quickly how to do it. And then the, the ability for the entire company our entire team got on board really, really fast. And that's allowed us to create this, this pivot, this shift in our focus and how we articulate to the market. And so I think recognizing those types of opportunity was not easy. That was actually a really hard thing to do for us. Me personally, how do you change what you've been talking about Um, because you feel it's the right thing for the business and it needs to happen really fast. And there were some hard decisions being done at the time as well. So great learning opportunity, but just want to be kind of, you know, reinstate it's not an easy journey and it's having the ability to recognize the, those, those uh, market signal and be able to act upon them that are really Mm -hmm. important. And then from the fundraising, you know, I, I'd say, um, I'd say generally, and I do mentor a lot of women, founders, um, I, I would say that we typically, and I'm generalizing because it's not all, but typically I see a lot more women taking on personal risk, doing kind of this on your own for too long, frankly, before building a team or even before raising capital. Um, I see a lot of women giving their, their CEO title to someone else or thinking someone else can maybe do a better job. And so I think it's really important to recognize that in order to be successful, you do need to surround yourself with really good people. And I'd say probably earlier than later. Um, And, you know, have the confidence to follow your instincts, to know that what you're building is the right thing. So rely on people that are smart, that are complimenting you, but not thinking that someone else can do it better than you. And so having the confidence to recognize that can be hard because you think, oh, this other person may have done it before, but every company is unique. And if you know your market and you know your vision, then just really trust your instincts there. And from a, you know, when you're raising capital, I hear it all the time. We tend to justify 
We tend to be more humble. We tend to over-explain things, which then as an investor, when you're seeing thousands of companies, like why is this person explain, over-explaining this? You're starting to see red flags instead of the opportunity. And I'd say debatably, there's maybe even better companies that are female founded because they take mm -hmm. on more personal risk. They take more time to validate the opportunity. And so there may be a better idea Um, so for investors, I'd say to listen more carefully, to be more patient, to ask questions differently, uh, to recognize, you know, the idea and what kind of support that this woman founder need in order for the company to be successful. And if you can provide that kind of support, then, you know, then consider investing. Um, and then for female founders, just to recognize that we do have differences. And so, yes, you have to be a little tighter in your pitch and you have to answer questions more directly. And I'm still having a hard time. I over explain things. Um, and, uh, and if you recognize that, you know, I think it, it, you're going to be further ahead. And I remember when Matt started with us and an investor asked at the beginning about this pivot and Matt pitched Killbook. He was like two weeks in the company and he pitched it so well. <laughs> it's like so good. I'm like, how does this happen? Is it, is it a guy thing? I don't know if it's a guy thing, but definitely it came out like it was bigger. It was more magical. It was tighter and it didn't change the vision. It didn't change the story. It was just the way it was articulated. It just sounded really compelling. Um, and so, and it's hard. It's hard when, you know, if you're bound to gender, it's just, you have to be mindful of it. But I think it comes from both sides. And I think the most, yeah. the more companies that are owned by women are successful IPO get large acquisition. I think the confidence and the quality of the companies and the founders will also grow and hopefully more and more and more support will be around to create an ecosystem that can really help because there's no way I could have done all of this by myself. Right. Um, I love that advice. That, that's really, really good advice. I honestly like around, around the, one, the team, but also kind of appreciating the differences. And I, I like the, the fact that you're also, Uh, you know, you're truthful in the fact that, like, he, I think here's where uh, I'm looking to improve. And, and just because someone can, can do it a bit better doesn't mean that I should negate where I'm strong. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and so you can kind of collaborate in, in different parts where maybe you have certain weaknesses, but then you complement other uh, people's strengths within your team. And, and that's the only way you're going to succeed as a startup. So love that. Um, anyways, I know uh, we, we both have to go because it's almost 10 and we were... Uh, Uh, late to get to the podcast, but I, I really appreciate you doing this stuff. And uh, as you always know, I'm cheerleading, as I always tell you on LinkedIn. So always a big fan of Tealbook from the start. And I just can't wait to see it grow. Hopefully we'll do this another time too. And as the story progresses, so. Yeah, sounds good. Well, I appreciate the opportunity, George. Nice talking to you. If you found this podcast useful, make sure to share it out with your community. And if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the podcast. I'll see you next time.